This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, 
I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Kim Drigget, Silas DeVries, and Barbara Nidal. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest and helped you wake up more refreshed the next day, consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar a month. There's cool perks um, for donating $5 a month, but no matter how much you donate, even a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. It is the second week of Spooky October 2022. I really hope you liked the last episode, um, H.G. Wells. I know I did. I loved reading it. Pretty spooky. So, this week is a real slow burn mystery novel. Um, Especially the beginning. It's quite the slow burn. But it really is uh, rhythmic and nice. The dialogue is wonderful. So I think it's going to be easy for you to fall asleep to it. And it is not too, too spooky at all, really. But the night story is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. I really hope this uh, helps you doze off into a deep, deep slumber. I look forward to bringing you more spooky stories in the coming weeks. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The story begun by Walter Hartwright of Clemenson, teacher of drawing. Chapter 1 This is the story of what a woman's patience can endure and what a man's resolution can achieve. If the machinery of the law could be depended on to fathom every case of suspicion and to conduct every process of inquiry, with moderate assistance only from lubricating influences of oil, of gold. The events which filled these pages might have claimed their share of the public attention in a court of justice. But the law is still 
in certain inevitable cases, the pre-engaged servant of the long purse. And the story is left to be told for the first time in this place. As the judge might once have heard it, so the reader shall hear it now. No circumstance of importance from the beginning to the end of the disclosure shall be related on hearsay evidence. When the writer of these introductory lines, Walter Hartwright by name, happens to be more closely connected than others with the incidents to be recorded, he will describe them in his own person. When his experience fails, he will retire from the position of narrator, and his task will be continued from the point at which he left it off by other persons who can speak to the circumstances under notice from their own knowledge, just as clearly and positively as he has spoken before them. Thus, the story here presented will be told by more than one pen, as the story of an offense against the laws is told in court by more than one witness, with the same object in both cases to present the truth always in its most direct and most intelligible aspect, and to trace the course of one complete series of events by making the persons who have been most closely connected with them at each successive stage relate their own experience word for word. Let Walter Hartwright, teacher of drawing, age 28 years, be heard first. Chapter 2 It was the last day of July. The long, hot summer was drawing to a close, and we, the weary pilgrims of the London pavement, were beginning to think of the cloud shadows on the cornfields and the autumn breezes on the seashore. For my own part, the fading summer left me out of health, out of spirits, and if truth must be told, out of money as well. During the past year, I had not managed my professional resources as carefully as usual, and my extravagance now limited me to a prospect of spending the autumn economically between my mother's cottage at Hampstead and my own chambers in town. The evening, I remember, was still and cloudy. The London air was at its heaviest. The distant hum of the street traffic was at its vainest. The small pulse of the light within me and the great heart of the city around me seemed to be sinking in unison, languidly and more languidly with the sinking sun. I roused myself from the book which I was dreaming over rather than reading and left my chambers to meet the cool night air in the suburbs. It was one of the two evenings in every week which I was so accustomed to spend with my mother and my sister, so I turned my steps northward in the direction of Hampstead. Events which I have yet to relate make it necessary to mention in this place that my father had been dead some years at the period of which I am now writing and that my sister, Sarah, and I were sole survivors of a family of five children. 
My father was a drawing master before me. His exertions had made him highly successful in his profession, and his affectionate anxiety to provide for the future of those who were dependent on his labors had impelled him from the time of his marriage to devote to the ensuring of his life a much larger portion of his income than most men consider it necessary to set aside for that purpose. Thanks to his admirable prudence and self-denial, my mother and sister were left, after his death, as independent of the world as they had been during his lifetime. I succeeded to his connection and had every reason to feel grateful for the prospect that awaited me at my starting in life. The quiet twilight was still trembling on the topmost ridges of the heath, and the view of London below me had sunk into the black gulf in the shadow of the cloudy night when I stood before the gate of my mother's cottage. I had hardly rung the bell before the house door was opened violently. My worthy Italian friend, Professor Pesca, appeared in the servant's place and darted out joyously to receive me with a shrill foreign parody on an English cheer. On his own account, I must be allowed to add, on mine also, the professor merits the honor of a formal introduction. Accident has made him the starting point of the strange family story which it is the purpose of these pages to unfold. I had first become acquainted with my Italian friend by meeting him at certain great houses where he taught his own language and I taught drawing. All I then knew of the history of his life was that he had once held a situation in the University of Padua, that he had left Italy for political reasons, the nature of which he uniformly declined to mention to anyone, and that he had been for many years respectively established in London as a teacher of languages. He was perfectly well-proportioned from head to foot. Pesca was, I think, the smallest human I ever saw out of a showroom. Remarkable anywhere, by his personal appearance, he was still further distinguished among the rank and file of mankind by the harmless eccentricity of his character. The ruling idea of his life appeared to be that he was bound to show his gratitude to the country which had afforded him an asylum and a means of subsistence by doing his utmost to turn himself into an Englishman. Not content with paying the nation in general the compliment of invariably carrying an umbrella and invariably wearing gaiters and a white hat, the professor further aspired to become an Englishman in his habits and amusements as well as in his personal appearance. Finding us distinguished as a nation by our love of athletic exercises, the little man, in the innocence of his heart, devoted himself impromptu to all our English sports and pastimes whenever he had the opportunity of joining them. Firmly persuaded that he could adopt our national amusements of the field 
by an effort of will precisely as he had adopted our national gaiters and our national white hat. I had seen him risk his limbs blindly at a fox hunt and in a cricket field, and soon afterwards I saw him risk his life just as blindly in the sea at Brighton. We had met there accidentally and were bathing together. If we had been engaged in any exercise peculiar to my own nation, I should, of course, have looked after Pesca carefully. But as foreigners are genuinely quite as well able to take care of themselves in the water as Englishmen, it never occurred to me that the art of swimming might merely add one more to the list of manly exercises which the professor believed that he could learn impromptu. Soon after we had both struck out from shore, I stopped. Finding my friend did not gain on me, and I turned around to look for him. To my horror and amazement, I saw nothing between me and the beach but two little white arms which struggled for an instant above the surface of the water and then disappeared from view. When I dived for him, the poor little man was lying quietly coiled up at the bottom in a hollow of shingle, looking by many degrees smaller than I had ever seen him look before. During the few minutes that elapsed while I was taking him in, the air revived him and he ascended the steps of the machine with my assistance. With the partial recovery of his animation came the return of his wonderful delusion on the subject of swimming. As soon as his chattering teeth would let him speak, he smiled vacantly and said he thought it must have been the cramp. When he had thoroughly recovered himself and had joined me on the beach, his warm southern nature broke through all artificial English restraints in a moment. He overwhelmed me with the wildest expression of affection, exclaimed passionately in his exaggerated Italian way that he would hold his life henceforth at my disposal, and declared that he should never be happy again until he found an opportunity of proving his gratitude by rendering me some service which I might remember on my side to the end of my days. I did my best to stop the torrent of his tears and protestations by persisting in treating the whole adventure as a good subject for a joke, and succeeded at last, as I imagined, in lessening Pesca's overwhelming sense of obligation to me. Little did I think then, Little did I think afterwards when our pleasant holiday had drawn to an end that the opportunity of serving me, for which my grateful companion so ardently longed, was soon to come. That he was eagerly to seize it on the instant, and that by doing so was to turn the whole current of my existence into a new channel, and to alter me to myself almost past recognition. Yet so it was. If I had not died for Professor Pesca when he lay under water on his shingle bed, 
I should in all human probability never have been connected with the story which these pages will relate. I should never, perhaps, have heard even the name of the woman who has lived in all my thoughts, who has possessed herself of all my energies, who has become the one guiding influence that now directs the purpose of my life. Chapter 3 Pesca's face and manner on the evening when we confronted each other at my mother's gate were more than sufficient to inform me that something extraordinary had happened. It was quite useless, however, to ask him for an immediate explanation. I could only conjecture, while he was dragging me in by both hands, that, Knowing my habits, he had come to the cottage to make sure of meeting me that night, and that he had some news to tell me of an unusually agreeable kind. We both bounced into the parlor in a highly abrupt and undignified manner. My mother sat by the open window, laughing and fanning herself. Pesca was one of her special favorites, and his wildest eccentricities were always pardonable in her eyes. Poor dear soul. From the first moment, when she found out that the little professor was deeply and gratefully attached to her son, she opened her heart to him unreservedly and took all his puzzling foreign peculiarities for granted without so much as attempting to understand any one of them. My sister Sarah, with all the advantages of you, was strangely enough less pliable. She did full justice to Pesca's excellent qualities of heart, but she could not accept him implicitly, as my mother accepted him, for my sake. Her insular notions of propriety rose in perpetual revolt against Pesca's constitutional contempt for appearances she was always more or less undisguisedly astonished at her mother's familiarity with the eccentric little foreigner. I have observed, not only in my sister's case, but in the instances of others, that we of the young generation are nothing like so hardy and so impulsive as some of our elders. I constantly see old people flushed and excited by the prospect of some anticipated pleasure, which altogether fails to ruffle the tranquility of their serene grandchildren. Are we, I wonder, quite such genuine boys and girls now as our seniors were in their time? Has the great advance in education taken rather too long a stride, and are we in these modern days just the least trifle in the world too well brought up? Without attempting to answer those questions decisively, I may at least record that I never saw my mother and my sister together in Pesca's society without finding my mother much the younger woman of the two. On this occasion, for example, while the old lady was laughing heartily over the boyish manner in which we tumbled into the parlor, Sarah was perturbedly picking up the broken pieces of a teacup which the professor had knocked off the table in his precipitate advance 
to meet me at the door. I don't know what would have happened, Walter, said my mother, if you had delayed much longer. Pesca has been half mad with impatience, and I have been half mad with curiosity. The professor has brought me some wonderful news with him, in which he says you are concerned, and has cruelly refused to give us the smallest hint of it till his friend Walter appeared. Very provoking. It spoils the set, murmured Sarah to herself, mournfully absorbed over the ruins of the broken cup. While these words were being spoken, Pesca, happily and fussily unconscious of the irreparable wrong which the crockery had suffered at his hands, was dragging a large armchair to the opposite end of the room so as to command us all three in the character of a public speaker addressing an audience. Having turned the chair with its back towards us, he jumped into it onto his knees and excitedly addressed his small congregation of three from an impromptu pulpit. Now, my good dears, began Pesca, who always said good dears when he meant worthy friends. Listen to me. The time has come. I recite my good news. I speak at last. Hear, hear, said my mother, humoring the joke. The next thing he will break, Mama, whispered Sarah, will be the back of the best armchair. I go back into my life, and I address myself to the noblest of created beings, continued Pesca vehemently apostrophizing my unworthy self over the top rail of the chair. Who found me dead at the bottom of the sea, through cramp, and who pulled me up to the top? And what did I say when I got into my own life and my own clothes again? Much more than was at all necessary, I answered as doggedly as possible. For the least encouragement in connection with this subject invariably let loose the professor's emotions in a flood of tears. I said, persisted Pesca, that my life belonged to my dear friend Walter for the rest of my days, and so it does. I said that I should never be happy again till I had found the opportunity of doing a good something for Walter and I have never been contented with myself till this most blessed day. Now, cried the enthusiastic little man at the top of his voice, the overwhelming happiness burst out of me at every pore of my skin, like a perspiration, for on my faith and soul and honor that something is done at last, and the only word to say now is, right, all right. It may be necessary to explain here that Pesca prided himself on being a perfect Englishman in his language, as well as in his dress, manners, and amusements. Having picked up a few of our most familiar colloquial expressions, he scattered them about over his conversation whenever they happened to occur to him, turning them 
and his high relish for their sound and his general ignorance of their sense into compound words and repetitions of his own and always running them into each other as if they consisted of one long syllable. Among the fine London houses where I teach the language of my native country, said the professor, rushing into his long deferred explanation without another word of preface. There is one, mighty fine, in the big place called Portland. You all know where that is? Yes, yes, of course, of course. The fine house, my good dears, has got inside it a fine family. A maid, fair and fat. Three young misses, fair and fat. Two young misters, fair and fat. And a papa, the fairest and fattest of them all, who is a mighty merchant, up to his eyes in gold. A fine man once, but seeing that he has got a naked head and two chins, fine no longer at the present time. Now mind, I teach the sublime Dante to the young misses, and, ah, my soul, bless my soul. It is not in human language to say how the sublime Dante puzzles the pretty heads of all three. No matter, all in good time, and the more lessons, the better for me. Now mind. Imagine to yourselves that I am teaching the young misses today, as usual. We are all four of us down together in the hell of Dante, at the seventh circle. But no matter for that, all the circles are alike to the three young misses, fair and fat. At the seventh circle, nevertheless, my pupils are sticking fast, and I, who set them going again, recite. Explain and blow myself up red hot with useless enthusiasm. When, a creak of boots in the passage outside, and in comes the golden papa, the mighty merchant with the naked head and the two chins. Ha, my good dears, I am closer than you think for to the business now. Have you been patient so far? Or have you said to yourselves, deuce what the deuce? Pesca is long-winded tonight. We declare that we were deeply interested. The professor went on. In his hand, the golden papa has a letter. And after he has made his excuse for disturbing us in our infernal region with the common mortal business of the house, he addresses himself to the three young misses and begins, as you English begin everything in this blessed world, that you have to say with a great O. Oh, my dears, says the mighty merchant, I've got here a letter from my friend, Mr. The name has slipped out of my mind, but no matter, we shall come back to that. Yes, right all right. So the papa says, I've got a letter from my friend, the mister, and he wants to recommend for me of a drawing master to go down to his house in the country. My soul, bless my soul. When I heard the golden papa say those words, if I had been big enough to reach up to him, 
I should have put my arms around his neck and pressed him to my bosom in a long and grateful hug. As it was, I only bounced upon my chair. My seat was on thorns, and my soul was on fire to speak, but I held my tongue and let Papa go on. Perhaps you know, says this good man of money, twiddling his friend's letter this way and that, and his golden fingers and thumbs. Perhaps you know, my dears, of a drawing master that I can recommend. The three young misses all look at each other, and then say, with an indispensable gray O to begin, Oh, dear no, Papa, but here's Mr. Pesca. At the mention of myself, I can hold no longer. The thought of you, my good dears, mounts like blood to my head. I start from my seat, as if a spike had grown up from the ground through the bottom of the chair. I address myself to the mighty merchant, and I say, English phrase, Dear sir, I have the man, the first and foremost drawing master of the world, Recommend him by the post tonight and send him off, bag and baggage. English phrase again, ha. Send him off, bag and baggage, by the train tomorrow. Stop, stop, says Papa. Is he a foreigner or an Englishman? English to the bone of his back, I answer. Respectable, says Papa. Sir, I say, for the last question of his outrages me, and I have done being familiar with him. Sir, the immortal fire of genius burned in this Englishman's bosom, and what is more, his father had it before him. Never mind, says the golden barbarian of a papa. Never mind about his genius, Mr. Pesca. We don't want genius in this country unless it is accompanied by respectability and then we are very glad to have it. Very glad indeed. Can your friend produce testimonials? Letters that speak to his character? I wave my hand negligently. Letters, I say. Ha, my soul, bless my soul. I should think so indeed. Volumes of letters and portfolios of testimonials, if you like. One or two will do, says this man of phlegm and money. Let him send them to me, with his name and address, and... Stop, stop, Mr. Pesca. Before you go to your friend, you had better take a note. Bank note, I say indignantly. No bank note, if you please till my brave Englishman has earned it first. Banknote, says Papa, in a great surprise. Who talked of a banknote? I mean a note of the terms, a memorandum of what he is expected to do. Go on with your lesson, Mr. Pesca, and I will give you the necessary extract from my friend's letter. Down sits the man of merchandise and money to his pen, ink and paper, and down I go once again into the hell of Dante, 
with my three misses after me. In ten minutes' time, the note is written, and the boots of Papa are creaking themselves away in the passage outside. From that moment, on my faith and soul and honor, I know nothing more. The glorious thought that I have caught my opportunity at last, and that my grateful service for my dearest friend in the world is as good as done already, flies up into my head and makes me drunk. How I pull my young missus and myself out of our internal region again. How my other business is done afterwards. How my little bit of dinner slides itself down my throat. I know no more than a man in the moon. Enough for me that here I am with the mighty merchant's note in my hand. As large as life, as hot as fire, and as happy as a king. Ha, ha, ha. Right, 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 all right. Here the professor waved the memorandum of terms over his head and ended his long and voluble narrative with his shrill Italian parody on an English cheer. My mother rose the moment he had done, with flushed cheeks and brightened eyes. She caught the little man warmly by both hands. My dear, good Pasca, she said, I never doubted your true affection for Walter, but I am more than ever persuaded of it now. I am sure that we are very much obliged to Professor Pasca for Walter's sake, added Sarah. She half rose while she spoke, as if to approach the armchair in her turn but observing that Pesca was rapturously kissing my mother's hands, looked serious, and resumed her seat. If the familiar little man treats my mother in that way, how will he treat me? Faces sometimes tell true, and that was unquestionably the thought in Sarah's mind as she sat down again. Although I myself was gratefully sensible of the kindness of Pesca's motives, my spirits were hardly so much elevated as they ought to have been by the prospect of future employment now placed before me. When the professor had quite done with my mother's hand, and when I had warmly thanked him from his interference on my behalf, I asked to be allowed to look at the note of terms which his respectable patron had drawn up for my inspection. Pasca handed me the paper with a triumphant flourish of the hand. Read, said the little man majestically, I promise you, my friend, the writing of the golden papa speaks with the tongue of trumpets for itself. The note of terms is plain, straightforward and comprehensive at any rate. It informed me, first, that Frederick Fairley, Esquire of Limeridge House, Cumberland, wanted to engage the services of a thoroughly competent drawing master for a period of four months certain. Secondly, that the duties which the master was expected to perform would be of a twofold kind 
He was to superintend the instruction of two young ladies in the art of painting and watercolors. Then he was to devote his leisure time afterwards to the business of repairing and mounting a valuable collection of drawings, which had been suffered to fall into a condition of total neglect. Thirdly, that the terms offered to the person who should undertake and properly perform these duties were four guineas a week, and that he was to reside at Limeridge House, and that he was to be treated there on the footing of a gentleman. Fourthly, and lastly, that no person need think of applying for this situation unless he could furnish the most unexceptionable references to character and abilities. The references were to be sent to Mr. Fairley's friend in London, who was empowered to conclude all necessary arrangements. These instructions were followed by the name and address of Pesca's employer in Portland Place, and there the note or memorandum ended. The prospect which this offer and of engagement held out was certainly an attractive one. The employment was likely to be both easy and agreeable. It was proposed to me at the autumn time of the year when I was least occupied, and the terms, judging by my personal experience in my profession, were surprisingly liberal. I knew this. I knew that I ought to consider myself very fortunate if I succeeded in securing the offered employment. And yet, no sooner had I read the memorandum than I felt an inexplicable unwillingness within me to stir in the matter. I had never in my whole of my previous experience found my duty and my inclination so painfully and so unaccountably at variance as I found them now. Oh, Walter, your father never had such a chance as this, said my mother, when she had read the note of terms and had handed it back to me. Such distinguished people to know, remarked Sarah, straightening herself in her chair, and on such gratifying terms of equality, too. Yes, yes, the terms in every sense are tempting enough, I replied impatiently, but before I send in my testimonials, I should like a little time to consider. Consider, exclaimed my mother. Why, Walter, what is the matter with you? Consider, echoed my sister, what a very extraordinary thing to say under the circumstances. Consider chimed in the professor. What is there to consider about? Answer me this. Have you not been complaining of your health, and have you not been longing for what you call a smack of the country breeze? Well, there in your hand is the paper that offers you perpetual choking of mouthfuls of country breeze for four months' time. Is it not so? Ha. Again, you want money. Well, is four golden guineas a week nothing? My soul, bless my soul, only give it to me, and my boots shall creak like the golden papas with a sense of the overpowering richness of the man who walks in them. 
four guineas a week, and more than that, the charming society of two young misses. And more than that, your bed, your breakfast, your dinner, your gorging English teas, and lunches and drinks of foaming beer, all for nothing. Why, Walter, my dear good friend, deuce what the deuce. For the first time in my life, I have not eyes enough in my head to look and wonder at you. Neither my mother's evident astonishment at my behavior nor Pesca's fervid enumeration of the advantages offered to me by the new employment had any effect in shaking my unreasonable disinclination to go to Limeridge House. After starting all the petty objections that I could think of to going to Cumberland, and after hearing them answer, one after another, to my own complete discomfiture, I tried to set up a last obstacle by asking what was to become of my pupils in London while I was teaching Mr. Fairley's young ladies to sketch from nature. The obvious answer to this was that the greater part of them would be away on their autumn travels, and that the few who remained at home might be confined to the care of one of my brother drawing masters, whose pupils I had once taken off his hands under similar circumstances. My sister reminded me that this gentleman had expressly placed his services at my disposal during the present season, in case I wished to leave town. My mother seriously appealed to me not to let an idle caprice stand in the way of my own interest and my own health. And Pesca piteously entreated that I would not wound him to the heart by rejecting the first grateful offer of service that he had been able to make to the friend who had saved his life. The evident sincerity and affection which inspired these remonstrances would have influenced any man with an atom of good feeling in his composition. Though I could not conquer my own unaccountable perversity, I had at least virtue enough to be heartily ashamed of it, and to end the discussion pleasantly by giving way, and promising to do all that was wanted of me. The rest of the evening passed merrily enough in humorous anticipations of my coming life with two young ladies in Cumberland. Pesca, inspired by our national gras, which appeared to get to his head in the most marvelous manner, five minutes after it had gone down his throat, asserted his claims to be considered a complete Englishman by making a series of speeches in rapid succession, proposing my mother's health, my sister's health, my health, and the healths and mass of Mr. Farley and the two young misses pathetically returning thanks himself immediately afterwards for the whole party. A secret, Walter, said my little friend confidently as we walked home together. I am flushed by the recollection of my own eloquence. My soul bursts itself with ambition. One of these days I go into your noble parliament. It is the dream of my whole life to be Honorable Pesca, M.P., 
The next morning I sent my testimonials to the professor's employer in Portland Place. Three days passed and I concluded with secret satisfaction that my papers had not been found sufficiently explicit. On the fourth day, however, an answer came. It announced that Mr. Fairley accepted my services and requested me to start for Cumberland immediately. All the necessary instructions for my journey were carefully and clearly added in a postscript. I made my arrangements unwillingly enough for leaving London early the next day. Towards evening, Pascal looked in on his way to a dinner party to bid me goodbye. I shall dry my tears in your absence, said the professor gaily with a glorious thought. It is my auspicious hand that has given the first push to your fortune in the world. Go, my friend, when your sun shines in Cumberland, English proverb, in the name of heaven, make your hay. Marry one of the two young misses, become Honorable Hartwright M.P., and we're at the top of the ladder, remember Pesca at the bottom has done it all. I tried to laugh with my little friend over his parting jest, but my spirits were not to be commanded. Something jarred in me almost painfully while he was speaking his light farewell words. When I was left alone again, nothing remained to be done but to walk to the Hampstead cottage and bid my mother and Sarah goodbye. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.